As we step into Mark 5 together, let's ask the Lord to meet us in the reading and preaching of his word. Lord, we delight that you have given us your scriptures. We want to hear and understand from you this morning. We ask you to um, open our ears and our hearts. We say that we love you and we commit to obedience to you this morning again. In Jesus' name, amen. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. We begin a new preaching series today on the life and teaching of Jesus. And I often say, if you want to know what Christians believe about God, then look at Jesus. Christians believe that in the person and work of Jesus, we see who God is, and in the life and ministry of Jesus, we see God at work in the world. And so, as we begin this new year, and as we anticipate a big transition coming up for us as a church, we want to be centered and focused on Jesus. We want to see him clearly. I want to invite us to trust him as he calls us to a new place, a new space, 
And we want to be able to confidently invite others to investigate Jesus for themselves, to consider who he is and why what you believe about him matters. So in this series, we're going to investigate Jesus from two different perspectives. In part one, in the season of Epiphany, we're going to think about the relationships of Jesus with a variety of people. We can't look at every relationship that Jesus had with people in the Gospels, but we're going to look at some key relationships that he had with an extraordinarily diverse set of people, with the powerless, with the privileged, with a religious outsider, with insiders, with critics, with the anxious. And these relationships give us a window into the person of Jesus, what mattered to him, what his priorities were, what his character was like. And so that's part one. And then in part two, during Lent, we'll consider some key teachings of Jesus. We'll come to that later. For today, we want to take a close look at this incredibly moving narrative from the Gospel of Mark about Jesus' relationship with people who were powerless in the face of very difficult, really heart-wrenching circumstances. And there are three here. First, there is the father uh, whose daughter is dying. Second, there is the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And finally, there is the little girl uh, who dies in the middle of the story. Let's look at each one of these. And they each have something to teach us about Jesus and what what it means to encounter him in faith. Let's start with the father. Even though Mark sets the scene here with just a few sentences, it's such a moving scene. This father, Jairus, comes to Jesus in desperate need of healing for his little girl. He falls at Jesus' feet. He implores him earnestly. And he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus here makes himself very vulnerable before Jesus and before the crowd. We know this is true because we're told that he was a man of great status and honor, one of the rulers of the synagogue, according to verse 22. A synagogue ruler is a specific office in the organization of a synagogue. Just as we have officers in our church, elders and pastors and deacons, and these officers are responsible for the health and the faithfulness of our congregation, Jewish synagogues had, and and still have, these kinds of officers. In the first century, each synagogue would have had elders, and they would elect a ruler, a head, or, you know, a a president uh, who had special responsibility. And this is Jairus' position. He's the president of the local synagogue in this area. And You can get a sense of the esteem with which these leaders were held uh, from a passage in the Jewish Talmud, 
which also gives some marriage advice to Jewish young men. And here's what the Talmud says. Our rabbis taught, let a man always sell all he has and marry the daughter of a scholar. Shows how in Jewish culture, scholarship has always been uh, elevated and appreciated. So let a man sell all he has and marry the daughter of a scholar. If he does not find the daughter of a scholar, let him marry the daughter of one of the great men of the generation. If he does not find the daughter of one of the great men of the generation, let him marry the daughter of a head of a synagogue. So you see that the head of a synagogue is third in line for most respected Jewish fathers-in-law. And this is Jairus' position. He was a man of stature and respectability in the community. And it would have been shocking to find a man like this falling at the feet of an itinerant rabbi like Jesus, begging for help. But this is what Jairus does out of care for his daughter. He's desperate. He has nowhere else to go. So he asks for help from Jesus. And Jesus goes with him right away. Jairus shows us something important about a relationship with Jesus. Especially if you're the kind of person who is generally pretty successful and respectable. When you're successful and respectable, it's easy to build up a kind of buffer around yourself that makes it seem like you're invincible. You may believe in God, but you don't really need him in your daily life. And the modern world in which we live encourages us to think like this. You just take the area of healing, for example. Why should we pray for God to work a miraculous healing when we have such amazing medical professionals and technology to rely on? And that's true. We do have amazing medical professionals, some of you here today. Uh, We do have amazing uh, technology, often uh, at hand, and God can work through doctors and hospital systems But we also know that even these resources have their limits. It often takes a tragic event, uh, some great failure or loss, to bring you to a place where you come to the end of yourself and your own resources and even the resources of our society are of no use. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago while reading a book that is a series of interviews with the Australian musician Nick Cave. Now, not all of you may know Nick Cave of the band Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Uh, I'm getting a lot of blank stares, uh, so I'll I'll assume that it's a minority of you who are fans. Uh, But he's he's well known uh, for his baritone voice Uh, for the emotional intensity of his music and for his lyricism. Some even consider him one of the greatest living songwriters of our time. 
Uh, he's very successful. Uh, he was at his peak in the, in the 80s and 90s, but uh, his success has really only continued and, and grown in the last few years. And uh, he's well known uh, also for overcoming a long addiction and getting married and, and settling down uh, after living the rock star life for, for many years. But in 2015, Nick Cave and his wife uh, suffered a, a heartbreaking, uh, life-altering tragedy when their 15-year-old son, Arthur, who was a twin, uh, fell from a cliff and, and died near their home in Brighton, England. But surprisingly, rather than move him farther away from faith in God, this tremendous suffering has brought him closer. In some mysterious way, he says, uh, that he has experienced God's presence with him in his sorrow. And I want to give you a quote. I put it in the bulletin in the reflections page um, about something he says about faith and reason. And in that quote, you'll see it starts with the interviewer. And the interviewer responds to what he says and says, so just to make sure I've got this right, you would like to get past your doubt and just believe wholeheartedly in God. But your rational self is telling you otherwise. You can see this, interview is trying, this interviewer is, is trying to make sense of what Cave is saying by giving him a choice between reason and faith. But listen to Cave's reply. He says, well, my rational self seems to be less assured these days, less confident. Things happen in your life, terrible things, great obliterating events, where the need for spiritual consolation can be immense. And your sense of what is rational is less coherent and can suddenly find itself on very shaky ground. We are supposed to put our faith in the rational world, in the modern age, Yet when the world stops making sense, perhaps your need for some greater meaning can override reason. And in fact, it can suddenly seem the least interesting, most predictable, and least rewarding aspect of yourself. That is my experience anyway. I think of late, I've grown increasingly impatient with my own skepticism. It feels obtuse and counterproductive, something that's simply standing in the way of a better lived life. I feel it would be good for me to get beyond it. I think I would be happier if I stopped window shopping and just stepped through the door. What I think Nick Cave is saying is that the choice is not between reason and faith, but a choice between a faith in what he can understand, what he can control, a faith in what is quote unquote rational, or stepping through the door and placing his faith in something greater that comes from beyond this world, placing his faith in God. Mysteriously, it's often suffering or failure that cracks us open to this reality that is above and beyond us. In a similar way, Jairus shows us what it looks like when we give up our self-satisfied pride 
and instead go to Jesus for help. And what we see in Jesus is that he is ready to respond to anyone who comes to him. And Jairus goes, and he begins to walk with Jesus. And uh, perhaps some of you have made that choice and begun to walk with Jesus. But as you walk with him, you often learn that your need for faith and trust goes much deeper than you realized. And this is what we see in the next part of the story. So as Jesus is going with Jairus to his home, this woman pushes into the crowd, intent on just touching the hem of his garment. If she can just touch his clothing, she will be healed of her affliction. And so she gets behind him and just brushes her hand across his robe. And immediately, she's healed. Jesus realizes somehow that something has happened, and he starts looking around for who touched him. The disciples, you know, don't understand. You know, there are all these people crowding around, and he's looking for the one person who touched him. And then verse 33 says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, this woman could not be more different than Jairus. Jairus is at the top of the social scale. Uh, He's Jewish. He's a man. He's a religious leader. This unnamed woman is at the bottom. She's a woman, she's poor, she has this bleeding illness, which is probably some kind of menstrual hemorrhaging that, according to Jewish law, would have made her ritually unclean for the past 12 years. You know, this meant that no one would have been allowed to touch her, and for her to touch Jesus would have been scandalous. She spent all her money on doctors, And no one has been able to to help. It says, you know, she's actually gotten worse. So here is someone who is isolated in every possible way, physically, socially, spiritually, she's cut off. So you can see both why she's so desperate to get to Jesus, but also why she's so secretive that she comes to him from behind, just wanting to, to touch him. And Her encounter with Jesus teaches us two important lessons, something about Jesus and something about faith. First, about Jesus. Remember, Jesus is on a very important mission for the synagogue president. But halfway there, he stops to attend to this poor woman. This tells us something very important about Jesus. He was quick to respond to Jairus but he's equally committed to a woman whom he meets along the way who has nothing of Jairus's social standing. Jesus feels no pressure to perform for Jairus or to prioritize his needs over the woman's. Now, of course, she is healed right away when she touches Jesus, and so Jesus could have just kept going, right? She got what she wanted, But for Jesus, it wasn't enough. 
And here's what one commentator, James Edwards, says. The persistence of Jesus in discovering who touched him rivals the woman's persistence in reaching Jesus. She wants a cure, however, a something, whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter with someone. He is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. It's not enough for him just to give her the healing and move on. He wants to know who she is and to speak to her. He wants to know her. And so he stops and he looks for her and he speaks to her. He calls her daughter and he commends her faith. This brings us to the second point, what she teaches us about faith. As this woman comes to Jesus, she has nothing to boast about. She has nothing to trade with Jesus for a miracle. She doesn't have any good works. She doesn't have any status. All she has is 12 years of shameful suffering and fruitless doctor's appointments. Someone, you know, might even criticize her theology because she seems to think that Jesus' clothing has some special power. And yet, Jesus makes a point very publicly to commend her faith. She shows us here the nature of true faith. Christian faith is not about us and what we're doing. It's about looking away from ourselves to the object of our faith, to Jesus. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is receiving and resting on Christ. And in faith, we always receive more than we think we deserve. I once heard about a woman uh, who was a lottery winner, and after she scratched her ticket, she thought that she'd won $1,000. She was pretty excited. Uh, and she went in to cash her ticket, and she discovered that she'd actually won $1,000 per week for the rest of her life. When she went in to receive uh, her winnings, how much faith did she have? She didn't have $1,000 per week faith. She had $1,000 faith. But she received so much more than she expected. It's the same with the woman who touches Jesus' clothing. It's the same with us. As someone has said, when you come to Jesus, all you need is nothing. It's when you come to Jesus from behind, just reaching out to grasp the edge of his cloak, that he turns and he gives you everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we've looked at the, the father, Jairus. We've, we've looked at this, this woman. Finally, let's, let's see what we learn from the end of the story as Jesus comes to the little girl. 
And while Jesus is, is talking to the woman, you know, the messenger comes from Jairus' house that his daughter is dead, so he doesn't need to bother Jesus anymore. And Jesus hears, and he, he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Notice what's going on here. Remember, he's paused the trip to Jairus' house to attend to the sick woman, and he's just commended her for her faith. And then, at this moment, when Jairus receives this message, and, and may have been tempted to, to totally despair, you know, his daughter has died, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, have faith. The Greek word for having faith here is a, is a present imperative. So we could translate it, don't be afraid, keep believing. It's as if everything that has transpired with this woman on the way to, uh, to Jairus' house is just an illustration for him of the kind of faith that he's going to need to have. The woman becomes a model of faith for Jairus at just the moment that he needs it. Jesus knew that he was going to be challenged to grow in his faith more than he realized was possible. And this is how it often goes in the Christian life. We take a step of faith. We place our trust in Christ for the first time, or, or perhaps we give up some idol that has been dominating our lives, and we walk with Jesus. But then we realize that something else has taken hold of our heart that competes with our affection and, and love for him. And, and we say something to ourselves like, I'm willing to stay with you, Jesus, as long as I have X. It might be a certain relationship or a job or financial security or freedom. But whatever it is, there will come a time when Jesus says to you, will you trust me more than anything else? And this is what Jesus asked Jairus to do at the, at the hardest moment in his entire life. He asked him to keep trusting him, to not give in to despair, but to keep having faith, to keep walking with Jesus, even though he doesn't know the end of the story. Jairus believes Jesus can heal his daughter. He didn't seem to believe that he could raise her from the dead. But this is what happens. They go to the house and the people are weeping and wailing and they laugh at him when Jesus says that the child isn't dead but sleeping. They know what a dead child looks like, but, but Jesus takes only the father and the mother and his closest disciples into where the, the girl was and he takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha Kumi, little, little girl, arise, get up. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, and they were, they were overcome with amazement. What we've seen today in this story is that Jesus is for the powerless. How powerless? Well, as powerless as a man who's willing to give up his social standing to beg for help. As powerless as a woman who is shunned and shamed as permanently unclean. But not only for these. The gospel declares that Jesus is for the most powerless of all, even the dead. 
There is no point at which a person can say, I am too far gone or too messed up for Jesus. You know how addicts will sometimes say that they had to reach rock bottom before they could ask for help, and that is often true. But if Jesus can even raise the dead, then there is no bottom for him. There is no point after which it's too late to ask for help, to have hope, to start again with him. And if you will believe that for yourself, then you can believe it for those around you too. The people in your life whom you think will never change or whom will will never come to faith. When you believe the gospel, you begin to see that no one is beyond saving and no one is beyond God's power. Jairus' daughter is raised up. She's healed. But what does this mean for those of us who have not seen our loved ones raised up? Or for those of us who continue to struggle with chronic illness or disability? Well, this was an issue even in Jesus' own day. You know, he didn't heal everyone in the Holy Land. He didn't raise all the dead. Even this little girl would one day die again. But what these miracles show us is the heart of Jesus for this fallen, broken world. With all the limitations of being a finite human being, he did meet the needs that he was able to meet with those who came to him. But he did not come just to provide miraculous healings or to walk around and impress people with great acts of power. These healings are just a foretaste of the renewal of the whole world that he promises for the future. The story of Jesus culminates not in him being acclaimed as a miraculous healer, but in him being crucified like a common criminal. On the cross, he is willing to give up all his power in order to become weak and to die for the sins of the world. The one who is all-powerful became powerless so that we might know his power for us. Friends, this means that for anyone who is struggling today, who knows their weakness, or is overwhelmed by grief, or who feels alone, that there is someone to whom you can go with your need. Jesus knows what it's like to hurt and to suffer. He went all the way to the end, to death itself, in order to come out the other side. He is for the powerless, and he invites us to come to him today and every day. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we look to Jesus asking that today and in the coming weeks you would give us a fresh vision of of who he is and his heart for the weakest among us. Uh, Help us to see ourselves as weak and in need of his grace and give us your spirit to be witnesses to his grace in the lives of those around us. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.